Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing great. You know the rest of that. Okay, yeah. the circumstances. Yes. It's How been a while you? since I've seen you, but this is uh, always good in that we are getting a lot of great artists to, uh, to talk to. In particular, right now, we are with Peter Himmelman. Uh, he's got a new album called Press On. The Jerusalem Post has said that he is the world's second best Jewish singer-songwriter. So uh, high praise indeed. I think uh, I think the first best is Gene Simmons, probably. I'm not sure, but um, that's, I don't what I, that's what I'd heard from yeah. you. Know. Yeah. So this uh, that's great. Um, of opinion. Yeah. So uh, welcome, Peter, to our show. Welcome to What Difference Does It Make? Thanks. I like the title. I mean, <laughs> maybe it's a maybe it's a real question you're asking. We're, we are wondering, we're, we're wondering why, yeah, why another podcast? Why do this? But uh, it's, uh, it's an excuse to talk to, to people and, and artists that we love. So, uh, so we welcome. We ponder it a lot. <laughs> it seems to fit us and it seems to fit the world. So welcome. Let's get started with it. Thanks for being here. Yeah. It's exciting because actually Peter's got his guitar. He, uh, I think uh, he said if the mood strikes him, he might start playing. So, you know, if there's a, a dead silence and that little awkwardness to the conversation, just throw in the guitar and start uh, start strumming away. <laughs> they call those interstitials in the business. <laughs> and we're back. How's that? I do your own bumpers. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Dave and I have decided we have a lot of... Um, we have a lot of random questions for you, but we want to talk about the new music first. The more random, the better. Whatever you got, I'm here. Awesome. All right. So even though Press On is a um, is your new album, this was uh, something that was made last year before this insanity happened. However, it seems to, like all great songwriters, it kind of can tie into what's going on in the world today. And I guess that that starts with with the actual the title track, "Press On." That seems to to really tie into how we're feeling, and it's kind of like a, a motivation to to keep going. <laughs> Is that uh, what was going on in your mind when you started uh, that song? Well, I mean, uh, usually when I if I write a song that's successful, the less I have on my mind, the better. The less of I'm going to write a song about this or that the better the song will be uh, coming into this, just sitting down with a guitar with a feeling that a song is about to emerge without any sort of preconditions or expectations, only a very strong sense of there's something that needs to be born is a very great way to, to, to go about things. I think so. It reminds me of Jasper Johns, the great American painter, when he said, why would I come to a canvas and paint what I already know? Which is not how the Renaissance <laughs> painters felt, but he's sort of like Picasso had said similarly. Um, I could paint like an adult as a child. And now as an adult, I, I strive to paint like a child. And a child uh, doesn't know a lot, but they really have a, an intact sense of wonder. It's only that as we age, we, I don't know, our minds go slack and we think we know things and our sense of curiosity and mystery is waylaid. So when I sat down to write this song, it was quarter to six, one late afternoon or early evening. My wife had bid me to come in for dinner at six, so I had 15 minutes to write it. Hmm. 
you know, I, I had, I knew this thing had to be born. So I just started writing and uh, you'll see there's not a lot of complex harmony on the song, mm-hmm. but the words just kind of rolled out. And when they roll out like that, in a sense that, wow, what did I just say? What did I just write? I can go on stage and, and almost inhabit the song. It's like a small room I walk into. And when I sing this song, because I don't really know exactly what it means, I only know what it feels like, I can take it in different ways each time. In the middle of the river, there's a brown and white pony stuck out on a rock with the current rushing by. The sun beats down and the wind whips up as a mother of crows bursts into the sky. I got a lucid feeling like something inside me is working up the courage to confront my own death. I step out in the water that's cold and in anger so cold it feels impossible to take my next breath as I go under I think about my mother I think about her hands just a stroke in my face I come up to the surface I look up at the sky I see swirls of red dust rising into space keep your head raised up and press on so how long is the process so for example with the song press on i probably did you know at the moment you mean how long did i take to come up with the the song itself yeah once you were you know once you were writing the whole thing probably took you know even to make a little uh, rudimentary demo which did have its pluses about 15 minutes and i went in and probably had beans and rice and fried egg on top or something like that is that helpful when you when you're structured like that or do you need more space really sometimes helpful. one of the greater tools is either to have like a you know like a sand dial or a timer on your phone and all sorts of restrictions help in other words if i had you know all year to write you a song you know, whatever it wouldn't, maybe in the 11th hour, I'd write it. But if you said to me, I'm going to pay you X amount of money and I need it by Tuesday, there's two things going on at once. One is the validation that you appreciate what I have to offer and that you, it's in the form of lucre. You're showing that appreciation that makes my internal judgment center kind of open wide. Like this guy already likes what I do. So it's it's going to be cool. And it's Tuesday, not some nebulous time that will give me this structure within which to work and, uh, you know, kind of corral all my resources very quickly. Did you know when you were writing this already that you were not going to release it for another, uh, another year after it came oh, together? You know, I, uh, I would probably, that kind of thought would interrupt the process, you know, gravely. It's about like, you know, if somebody's, you know, having some intimate moment and they're thinking about their Aunt Bessie in her grave, that, that could forestall the uh, proceedings. I mean, 
while I was writing, because of that particular song on that time, it was very fast. I was writing it quickly, and I was, you know, concurrently aware that this was something special. But if that if that awareness starts to intrude, you know, like then you wake up from the little dream that you're in. So it's a very delicate balance of these different facets of intellect, imagination. You know, they need to fuse together, but they have to be in a right balance. I mean, this is sort of crazy to, to describe it like that, but... You know, that's how it sometimes goes. It's organic. And then, there, and then there are songs that you write that are completely analytical. You know, this this line goes this, and this is exactly what I need to write about. It needs to have a linearity. It needs to have a, a clear narrative. I write a lot of, I've made five albums of children's songs. <laughs> so while there is this initial impetus, this sense of wading into the unknown, there has to be a very clear narrative same with country songs generally speaking of the children's line i'm taking us away from press on for a sec i'm just curious what was the catalyst for the for the children's albums which are really Uh, fun yeah yeah, that's a very specific catalyst uh i had just had maybe one or two kids at the time i was living you know in santa monica and somebody called me i was still on a record label but, you know, uh, they called me and said, I'm going to give you X amount of money, just like I was saying, to make a kid's record. And I need it by such and such a time. <laughs> Those are the two best things you can hear are or, or two of the best. And I didn't, you know, I hadn't really written kids records and I popped out a bunch of stuff, you know, Bucky, the tiny horse, the, t- the Bucky, the talking horse. Little Bitty Baby, My Best Friend is a Salamander. I mean, they all probably came to me in in a few days because there was a need. I needed the money, too. On that note, do do you feel, I mean, kid songs obviously are silly. And I, I love that. No, 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 they're, they're not. Well, silly. I, okay. Yeah. To my point, they, they can be silly at all. They can like roll doll and, you know, right. So, not silly. They, they're just in a language that children can appreciate. Right. Right. So how do you, how do you tie that together? I mean, cause sometimes, you know, my, my best friend is a salamander. I remember playing that for my daughter. That, that was, uh, she, you know, like three, four years old then silliness, but still there's lessons to be learned. And, and I also found it musically interesting for me. You know, kids mu- at that time, you know, it, it, kids music was sometimes yeah, rough to listen to. A lot of it was pretty obsequious. So. Yeah. So, but you brought you brought an, an adult aspect to it, but also appealing to children. So what, what was the secret sauce there? Well, I mean, it was just like, first of all, I didn't have any intention of writing a song that will teach kids about, you know, racial harmony. That wasn't my intention. I just sat down and my best friend is a salamander. I don't know how it, it just once I get into this sort of dreamlike headspace, something will come. And once that line, you know, my best friend is a salamander comes, I just imagine I'm walking through the house and I see everything that I'm seeing in this the salamander house. And I just write it down. Um, and then I understood that this was a song that was funny and somewhat absurdist, but also had, there was a, a special quality f- about it. It's, it's a serious song about differences, mm-hmm. but 
it's told in a in a language that children can appreciate. And ho- and hopefully adults won't want to like, oh God, let's can we get off of that? Similar to the to some of the brilliant uh, cartoons that are like the Simpsons that are made for like kids like them, but it's adult well, like humor. Like the Flintstones were made for you know it was made for adults. The kids yeah. we didn't probably get half the jokes at all. Exactly. So does that happen? Like sometimes you hear a phrase, like my best friend is a salamander, that worked for you. Uh, the same, I guess, uh, I was reading about Shelter in Peace, this new song you created um, while, you know, while, we're, while we've been quarantined in a way. Um, someone said that to you, and that was a, the impetus for a new song. Is that something that, that inspires yeah, you yeah, immediately? That's, that's definitely something. I mean, this friend of mine signed a text with that. I'm like, I said to her right away, I'm like, damn, that's, you know, let's just take, for example, here to exemplify what you're talking. Now, I can open up pretty much any book, which I sometimes do if I like, I, I just need some inspiration. This is a book about the First World War. It's really terse. It's hard to read through. But I'm going to take the book and I'm going to point to a paragraph. So let's see. But the Allies were less willing to jettison their claim. The British wanted full restoration of Bellman to retain it, while the German leaders, except for Kluman and, and briefly Bettelman, insisted on continuing control. Nor would they cede more than a fraction. So there's a line that pops out to me right there. You know, I could go... been a long time slipping around trying to get some long time start over long time slipping around trying to gain some traction the way i miss you baby is a lot more than a fraction i'm not the greatest but there you have an idea of how that could work you know there are these uh, inspirations are from cereal boxes. This says he sh- in this book he shows how in one year the war the war was transformed. You could just say, "Hey, in one day my world was transformed." That's a good title. How my world was transformed. I mean, it's everywhere. And then you start in like that. That's an artist. I don't know that David or I could do that. <laughs> no, it's well. I j- actually, well, you, didn't, you never tried. I mean, I've right. been doing this since I'm 12 years old. So, I mean, yeah. Actually, I just finished a book by uh, another great Jewish singer songwriter, Jeff Tweedy, who who wrote this book, "How to Write a Song in a Day," or just no, how to write one. How Jeff to write Tweedy just was, is Jeff Tweedy Jewish? He just he uh, he confirmed he conformed, uh, converted <laughs> he converted. Thank oh, you, jeez. Interesting. <laughs> yes, he can. He did okay. convert. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, same same ideas in this book. It's like a short little book, and it's um, just motivational. And kind of what you you go to is like take a subject, write something describing it, and just kind of uh, inspiring yourself to you know sit down at a desk and and create something. You know, I I, I think you've done something like that too. You have um, like with your big muse company, just encouraging people to be creative, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it is, and, and that's a, you know, creativity is something very difficult to define the way I've kind of looked at it for a decade or so, is that it's it's one state when one is not being imposed upon by their sense of judgment, their internal judgment is not pressing upon them. And one way that you get around it, and at least in terms of songwriting, is to become inured to writing horrible stuff. 
and and that thing that I just sang you more than a fraction, that's freaking God awful. <laughs> but nonetheless, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't hurt me to do that. It's not maybe something I would use. And I've written so many things that are not serviceable. They're just not good. And when you look, for example, at the sculpturist Calder, the artist, the mobilist, and you see pictures of his studio, you see that there's things all over the place. There's bent wire. There's pictures on napkins. There, There's just stuff. Now, is all that going to go into a museum probably because he's so famous, but did he intend it to? No. Some of it was just some junk hanging around. So part of it is being unafraid to be terrible. But something's inspiring that. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to, you know, release all your terrible things into the world, but some people are, you know, I understand this very well because I work with people on this quite a bit. They're sense of judgment is so highly attenuated that they the thought won't even arise in their own mind let alone forget about putting it out on tv or something it's they don't want to hear something in their own mind that's embarrassing and i tell them i wrote a book which i was wondering if uh, the people at penguin random house would not allow what I had written in the very end of the book. This is like making a final statement. And this is slightly untoward, but I'm going to try to put it in language that is less unpleasant, but nonetheless very true. You should view the flow of your creativity the same way you would view certain bodily functions. In other words, no one finds it abhorrent when they go to the bathroom. It's just like something that happens. You're not sitting and judging and you're not, by the way, bringing it to the dinner table either. It's just, there is a sense of flow. You're just like, let's, let's, let me see what's really in my mind. And it's a very beautiful thing when, when one's subconscious mind starts to open because it's a lot better then all this stuff we have right away is basically the same shit we've been saying every day, you know. All right, we're going to cut it off right now. Uh, We're in the middle of talking with Peter Himmelman. Stay right with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our chat with Peter Himmelman. You're talking about just, you know, some of it's not good. When you bring it to the dinner table, do you get feedback? And who do you get that feedback from? Well, that's, that's a great question. Now, something will have to cross my own personal threshold before I'll even take it to anyone. I think that I write songs for three people, maybe four. You know, uh, I write him for my second cousin, probably my best friend, Jeff Victor, who has been a keyboardist with me for a long time. He's a musical genius. So I kind of have him in mind. I have my older son and some of my kids in mind. My older son is most interested in the things I do. My wife, whom I'm very reluctant to share anything with her, but I plan on one day 
when I'm writing that I could release it and she would hear it. And maybe a bass player friend of mine named Matt Thompson who played on my new record. You know, just like, it's not a thousand people. It's it's a small group. Yeah. You know, that I, I really want to share things with. I'm curious why you're reluctant to go to your wife. Oh, I think that uh, I'd probably be a little bit more predisposed to taking it things to her now her her judgment is so powerful that if she didn't like it it would be over so i fear that i would hear something negative now she's an amazing poet she's she's writes things that make me like where did that come from and how did you that even come up with that she's very She's both methodical and can get into this sort of dream space that I'm talking about. And she, she'll share stuff with me all the time. Can I ask you about, uh, is location, has location affected your songwriting? Because, I mean, you've lived in Santa Monica for so long, and yeah, now all it, of a sudden you find yourself in a... It, uh, it's affected it a lot. This is probably, I know for a fact that this is the longest period of time because of COVID that I have not performed or, or even played with another musician mm. since I was 11 years old. It is the longest time that I have not performed live. You know, Zoom does not, mm-hmm. does not count. And there's something really wonderful and valuable about that, which I've only recently kind of stumbled on. Everybody, I believe... This, I have beliefs. I have no facts, by the way, just to make a caveat. Nothing I say is driven by data. <laughs> you know, this is like, it just, just my thoughts. So my thought is that anyone that gets up on stage and, you know, more so if they make a living out of it, they have uh, a problem. It's both a, a, a problem and a blessing because it stems in my opinion from a need for acknowledgement, which is outsized. Everyone has a need for acknowledgement, but people for whom the stage is, is their place. You, you get a, you know, to play for, you know, name the number of 50, a hundred, 10,000 of people that are clapping for you. And then not don't want you to leave because they love what you're hearing. They want an encore. You know, it's it's a kind of approval that most people never get in their lifetime. And it can be extremely dangerous. I mean, and I don't say that, you know, lightly. It can be so dangerous because in the absence of the applause, it's very easy to become depressed. And I've felt that way many times. But in this six months of not performing, you know, I, I found, and not even writing songs, I, by the way, to specific answer to your question, I have written probably the least amount I've ever written. Mm-hmm. You know, part of it was it's hard to write a bunch of new stuff until you've launched the stuff you've already done. So now maybe the, the refrigerator's cleared out and I could write some more. But <laughs> I don't even have... Uh, the slightest desire to write a song. Mm. Um, you know, this is a different kind of thing. So the move, you know, it wasn't just a physical move. It, it had sort of a metaphorical aspect as well. You're, you're, you're denying 
some stasis or you're pushing against some inertia and you're moving and you're, you're, you're clearly moving across a continent, but in your mind, it's about movement too to something else. And I've been writing songs and performing for the greatest part of my life. And uh, it's interesting to see what happens, you know, when that isn't going on. You brought Mistral and kerosene You brought Mistral and kerosene But I got no matches Now I got no heat I got a little excited But it don't feel quite complete Brought me straw and kerosene. You brought me straw and kerosene. But your straw is wet. I can't get it ablaze. I've been trying to light it now for eleven nights and days. You ain't got a spark. You're never gonna light it up You don't wanna fight it If you wanna light it up So you moved recently to New York, from Santa Monica to New yeah, York. Yeah, that's right. To be closer to your children and grandchild. Yeah, big thing, right. The grandchild wasn't even a thought when we moved. It's been an incredible surprise. <laughs> I did write a song for him when he was probably the first week he was born. And that was really a very tense time. I'm sure you've talked to people in New York. So that was the epicenter of the pandemic. People were dying in droves, sirens out my window. They never abated, not once. I mean, every five minutes, another one would come. And they weren't people with sprained ankles. And you didn't know if you could touch anything. You couldn't go out. It wasn't like being in most other places in the world. And my daughter had her son in her apartment on 93rd Street. She was scheduled to go in the hospital. My wife was, you know, very wise. She just said, you know, a few days before, you're not going in the hospital. You're having it at home. And my daughter had been studying the Bradley method, which is kind of a remember that (laughs) hippie kind of method and you know she was planning on having no drugs at all in order to qualify with midwifery you had to know all this stuff that the midwife said she had you know hundreds more calls than she'd ever had in her whole career because the hospitals were so deadly so it was bleak it was dark physically dark you know it was winter and rainy and I think my daughter didn't go out of the out of her little squalid apartment. And by the way, she was basically living alone because her husband is a doctor. Mm. He's a, an intern, an ophthalmological resident, which he is now. And all of a sudden, he's on the front lines of COVID. Out of 20 patients of his, 19 died. So he wasn't in the apartment. He wasn't living with her for two months. The baby was, mm-hmm. you know, right. he left when the baby was a week old. So it was a very tense time, you know, very uncertain time. 
And he's back now, I imagine. Oh, he's back. They're living in New Jersey. That's why I need where I'm going after we get out of this conversation. (laughs) So is that what uh, I looked at your original cover and it was like, I think like a a wagon was supposed to be the cover. And then all of a sudden we have a new album cover for Press On. Yeah, all of a sudden my, you know, he was probably, I don't know, a few weeks old at the time. My daughter sent me that picture. I'm like, hey, can I would you allow, you know, can you talk to my son? You know, they said, yeah. And, you know, he'll think it's cool when he gets older. (laughs) I mean, I had to do it with their permission. And it strikes me as a a more fitting cover because his eyes, you know, he's an infant. His eyes are so open. Mm -hmm. He's so so cute. Wonder and hope. And he's cute. (laughs) And, you know, some of the songs are a little bit darkish. And that brings a little light. I wonder if uh, people believe him in, in, you know, 30 years when he says, that's me. Oh, yeah, they'll have to. <laughs> Talk to the Nevermind baby and see if uh, see how that turns out. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how that works out. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, actually, w- with this music, you, you had recorded some music before. You were all set to record music or it was recorded. And then you read a uh, you saw a documentary. Is this what's what was the story? Yeah, and the, I mean, I had made all these demos for song after song. This is when I was really, you know, writing songs. I'm sure I'll get there again. And uh, I found a batch of songs that I liked, and I called the producer and engineer of my record. His name is Sheldon Gomber, a genius musician, incredible guy. And I said, you know, let's get some people and plan this thing. And he got. I think it was like some Ben Harper's rhythm section. And, you know, we set a date, which I sometimes do for the way into the future, but I'll, I'll, I'll set the date, which will be the pressure I need to actually make the record. Similar to what I'm talking about. You, you know, you have to have these constraints. There's no more record company expecting a record from me that those days have come and gone. And then I saw the, uh, it's called chasing train. I saw the documentary one night a beautiful documentary about him constantly trying to get to something more essential, something to tell his ineffable story better, however he would do it. And I'm thinking, you know, I could do better. And I wrote a bunch of songs. I press on was one of them there. You know, I, I would say 60% of the songs are were new and inspired after having watched that documentary. This is my offering You don't dance or sing It ain't no diamond ring You can't buy it at the five and dime It's beyond logic, money or time It's not a place of fame This is my offering It's inspiring me to watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's good. <laughs> but that's the confidence you had like to to push yourself. Is that uh, do you need other outside forces to help you? push on or is this something internal that that you have well, i do like i have a you know a handful of cadre of people that i i would talk to yeah i definitely need other people it's funny you know when you see like 
Springsteen's album on the cover or whomever, you know, solo artist. There's no such thing as anyone doing anything of any merit by themselves. It's never happened in the history of the world. Everything at some level was a collaboration. And the more you collaborate with people who are both honest and encouraging, those are hard to find, you know, and they're not that many of them. I think without those people, I'll put it a positive spin, with those people, you know, you can achieve so much more than you ever dreamed. So, yeah, I rely on people all the time. We are kind of an 80s music podcast, so we kind of have to refer to the 80s. I think we're legally obligated. So, <laughs> yes, I read through the uh, charter. <laughs> so, uh, I, I guess I should refer, did you get that initially from Sussman Lawrence? Like, you know, being in a band and pushing you constantly, you know, a, as a, you know, teenager. And, or, yeah, you know. yeah, it's really, it's, it's nice that you talked about that. That Sussman Lawrence started at the end of the 70s, like 79 or something into the 80s. And we were kids, you know, we were 18 years old. There were no adults helping us. There was no formal system. And we set up practice times, you know, six, seven days a week back when I wasn't keeping Shabbos, you know, from, you know, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. I mean, we were so strategic and so tactical and so disciplined. I mean, we were also nuts, too. I remember one time it was raining. We took a break from practicing, and there was this big mud hole out in the field at the junior high, and we all just ran through the mud, dove into the mud till we were complete zombie, you know, mud-caked humans. But we were really determined, and, you know, we used to get in a lot of kind of arguments, mostly me and my cousin, Jeff Victor, but it was a real collaboration. Somebody told me something uh, that may be apropos now of 80s bands or maybe 90s bands, but there were two bands, U2 and Guns and Roses, that this writer and psychologist had explored. And she's a friend of mine named Ruth Blatt. And she said, the difference between the bands is a little unexpected as to why one went to become very successful and why one kind of tapered off. Now, you know, my thinking was that Guns N' Roses just probably was out of their minds into some sort of deep hedonistic stuff and, and the drugs and they just blew up from that. And she said, yeah, no, that wasn't really what happened. You two were friends and they used to fight like cats and dogs over every issue. Guns N' Roses was this monolithic. What's the name? Who's the lead singer? Axel Rose. Axel Rose was kind of like, you know, he was running the show. And because it wasn't a real synthesis, a real collaboration, the animosities grew that weren't like regular fighting that I used to do with my band, Sussman Lawrence. Those were just collaborations like Israeli, you know, politics. Mm-hmm. This was, it, it grew into, because of this, you know, monolithic leadership style into true animosity. 
the guys in Sussman Lawrence, even though we used to fight and everything, I couldn't love them more than I do. Mm. You know, I just, I love all of them. I think, uh, yeah, I think songwriting is the same thing. They, uh, with you too, everyone got credit for songwriting. REM, same thing. Not so much uh, Guns N' Roses, you know? You know, when I st- you know, started my solo career, it was really great. It was really liberating. You know, I could make all the decisions myself. And, you know, I had the Sussman Lawrence guys on, on uh, several of the first albums. But I read uh, Keith Richards' autobiography. Mm-hmm. And I started getting homesick for a band. Like a real band that could yeah. just give me shit and say, what are you talking about? This bullshit sucks. And I think in some ways, in some ways I suffered for that, for not having that. Even though it was like in the eighties, you were, it kind of morphed into the Peter Himmelman band. Was It was still a collaboration. Did you, did you feel that? Or is that? Yeah, it, it was, but it was, it was much different. Now I was paying them. Okay. Yeah. It makes a big, big difference. And, you know, yeah. I always, you know, was the leader of the Sussman Lawrence band by, you know, whatever. But I had to argue every point. I had to fight for everything. Mm-hmm. Here I could just say no. And everyone would maybe be pissed off at, like, whatever. You do what you say. <laughs> I mean, it yeah. was, you know, I don't think there was any rancor there. But I don't think there was quite as much freedom to say, go, you know, screw off. Yeah. Hopefully once this, uh, this pandemic one day lifts in, in 2025, we'll, we'll hear about the Peter Himmelman, uh, his new band project. I'm hoping that comes a lot sooner. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I know we, I know we have to wrap it up, but I do have one question again, a random question I want to ask you. I'm just curious about personally. Mm. Um, the, the synesthesia, I'm assuming that you wrote that because it affects you. Well, I didn't write it because it affected me. And I think to some small extent, every musician has it. I mean, it's it's not uncommon for a musician to say, hey, you know, play something that just sounds like a, like a piece of rock or a, a hard sound, like a, like a wall. Or play something that's kind of like swamp green. You know, every musician could could respond to that because there is a there is a bit of synesthesia where you're you know seeing sound and you know hearing colors. For people that actually have it, it's an unbelievably debilitating disease. Yeah. I got the idea from reading something from you know biblical literature, Torah commentary, where upon the giving of the Torah, the Hebrews heard what was normally seen and saw what was normally heard. They, uh, what did it say? They saw, they saw the thunder and heard the lightning. You know, everything was reversed. They had kind of transcended the normal sensory order. And I liked the name of it. It was very hard for DJs to pronounce the... (laughs) What the hell? Uh, I'm not trying to make it easy on them. <laughs> no, I was curious because I thought I thought I wanted to know how it impacted you if you had it. But oh, I understand what you're saying about musicians and or artists. But I do have this one song I want to play if I can. Please. I 
I was on Zoom with Holly and Dave. I saw in their faces two folks that were wise and brave. Dave was wearing blue, Holly was wearing white. I could have sat here and talked to them people along into the night. But now it's teenage time for me. Teenage time for me. I've got a grandchild and a daughter to see. Something I've been working on for oh. a while. <laughs> well, I see our time is up. Well, <laughs> we we have a new theme song. <laughs> oh man, I could I could just write you guys one. That'd be so fun, you know. <laughs> You do Anytime. make it seem like it's a lot of fun. I'm going to, I'm going to have to pick up a pen and start uh, trying this thing out. Try and a guitar. It. Write to me and tell me what you come up with. All right, there we go. Collaboration. Let's start a band. <laughs> That's it. You do need to find an architecture for your lyrics, a form, a structure. So go look at any song that you like, like an old Beatles song. I was just seventeen, and you know what I mean. Dun and dun and I'm going to dance with another since I saw her saying you just just map out what somebody else did because without a structure, it'll just be nebulous and formula, you know, formless. Mm. So we're going to look at some Peter Himmelman songs. Look at mine. Mine (laughs) mine have, if nothing else, they all have solid structure to it. (laughs) That's what we always say. Peter Hillman, solid structure. That's (laughs) I like that. If somebody said that, all I want to say is to you guys, you should be happy, healthy, with all sorts of abundance of all good things. Thank you. And Shana Tova to you as well. Enjoy. Enjoy the holiday. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Peter Himmelman, the album is Press On. Please get it. <laughs> Give it a listen. That's Buy all you it. can say. Get, yeah. Uh, you know what? Get listen the, to it. Yeah. Listen to it. Buy it twice. Get the vinyl. Get the eight track. Apparently, you like eight track tapes. So, uh, I love them. I love them. <laughs> Spin it. All right, you guys. All right. Talk to you. Thank Thanks you so much. Yeah. Us. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Be safe. Holy moly, Holly. Peter Himmelman wrote a song about us. He wrote us a song. I'm, I'm amazed. I'm in awe. How nice to be able to do that at the drop of a hat, too. That, that's what you call talent. That's something that, uh, well, you know, he's been doing this for uh, for 40 years. And so uh, we, we have not. That, since he was 11 years old, he said, right? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, it was exciting. He, he's uh, just spontaneous. That's uh, improv songwriting right there. That's uh, that is amazing. So thank you to Peter Himmelman for joining us. Thank you to Carrie Baker of Conqueroo Publicity, who uh, who hooked us up with uh, with Peter. Thank you, Holly, for joining today. <laughs> As you do every day for, for sharing this podcast with me. Well, thank you. We do this every week. So, um, you know, as a reminder, join us uh, on our social networks. Where can they find us, Holly? Oh, they can find us everywhere. They can find us on Facebook at What Difference Does It Make? On Instagram, WDDIM Podcast, Twitter, WDDIM Podcast, and on YouTube. Just look for What Difference Does It Make? And you can hear little snippets and outtakes of our shows. It's super fun. There you go. Uh, You can sign up for our newsletter on our website, WDDIMpodcast.com. So thanks again for joining us. And until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.